Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining me for Season 3 of Uncommentary. This is your host for the entire season. My name is Marty Duran. Thanks for joining. Big shout out to my Patreons, my patrons, I suppose, at Patreon. And if you would like to be a supporter, or if you would just consider being a supporter, head on over to patreon.com slash uncommentary and do it right now. Hit pause, jump on over there, and make a commitment for a minuscule two or three or four or five dollars a month. Will cost you almost nothing, will be a tremendous help to me. Uh, and paying for audio work and scheduling and just some little bitty things that help make Uncommentary the uh, growing and good and hopefully even better this season podcast than it has been. Uh, if you'd like to give a one-time gift, head over to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and you'll be able to make a one-time gift via your debit or credit card. And uh, that would also be greatly, greatly appreciated. Now for this week's episode. My guest today on Uncommentary is Dana Hall McCain. Dana is a lifelong Alabamian, a graduate of Auburn University. She writes a daily column about faith, politics, and culture for the Alabama Media Group. Her work appears on their digital platform, AL.com, as well as in the Birmingham News, the Huntsville Times, and the Mobile Press Register. She was born and raised in the Southern Baptist denomination and has served as a women's ministry leader and a teacher in her local community Bible study class. She's a member of the 2019 Leadership Council for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention and volunteers each week at her local faith-based pregnancy resource center as a mentor. She's been married for 22 years to the most patient man on the planet, according to her. His name's Scooter. is the mother of two teenagers and will fistfight you over Auburn football. And being from Alabama myself, she is not the only one who will do that. Dana McCain, welcome to Uncommentary. Hey, Marty. How are you this morning? I am good. It is hot and humid outside of Nashville, Tennessee, as you could imagine, this time of year, getting ready for the dog days. Well, listen, I don't want to hear anybody in Nashville belly aching while I'm down here <laughs> about a mile off the equator in Dothan, Alabama. <laughs> I, I joke to people all the time that our Convention and Visitors Bureau here in Dothan should have branded the city all of the heat of the beach with none of that pesky breeze. That's right. <laughs> hey, uh, and I want you to, um, at some point in your life before you go to uh, meet your maker on good terms, I want mm -hmm. you to go down to the Southeast uh, Alabama General Medical Center or whatever the name of that place is and take a picture of yourself with a sign that says, A Great American Was Born Here, Marty Duran." Oh my gosh, I did not know that. Yes, so I, I need to see that from you. Yeah, well, and you know what? They have just rebranded the medical center, and now it's the much more chic Southeast Health. So um, the sign's going to look a little different than the day that Marty came into the world, but I can, I can make that happen. No, when Marty came into the world, it was uh, Southeast Alabama um, General Hospital. It wasn't, right. it wasn't even medical center. Right. So, yeah, that's so funny. How long did your parents live in this area? Uh, not really long, maybe um, three or four years, maybe. Okay. Something just like passing that. through. They were just passing through. My dad got a job there, and then he got a job outside of Atlanta, and we moved when I was a wee little, a wee little lad, and uh -huh. uh, I was raised outside of Atlanta. Well, well, that's pretty exciting stuff. Dothan's proud to have um, launched you. 
I can tell you that. <laughs> yes. Yes, I know. Every year when I come back for the Marty Duran Festival, it's just overwhelming. <laughs> We spent all year working like busy bees planning that. <laughs> so, uh, so I was I was looking for some like background information on you to get ready for this, and um, so I just typed in uh, Dana McCain, and lo and behold, living to tell about it. dot wordpress. dot com. Yes, that's still out there. Popped up, and uh, your old blog for two years now—it's been like abandoned. It's got cobwebs on it now. But is that—is uh, that so where you started? It, well, it was the first place I started, just sort of writing about whatever I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I graduated from Auburn with a degree in public relations and a minor in journalism, and worked for a little while in banking. Oddly enough, wow. I know, I know. It was a, it was a weird, weird gig. Um, I didn't know Auburn and, graduates could count. Oh come on! <laughs> Do you want me to drive to Nashville and hurt you? Because I would. <laughs> um, so no, I so I worked for a little while in banking, and then you know around that time I met the love of my life, one Scooter McCain, and uh, we were married and started having a family pretty quickly, and sort of made the decision that. I wanted to be at home full time with our children, at least for a season. And so um, I was I was just totally invested in motherhood for a few years. Mm -hmm. But it didn't take long at all for me to start feeling that itch that, you know, I had some skills. I had something to say and and I wanted to work a little bit again. And mm -hmm. so I started freelancing for several different publications, um, mostly lifestyle and faith based publications and I would go out and do feature stories on, you know, homes and interior design or new ministries or interesting ministry personalities. And so that that sort of kept me, I don't know, in, in the writing world and feeling like I was using that muscle mm -hmm. for a season. And then, um, but then, you know, that's about the time that everybody who could string a sentence together started a blog. And so. And all um, God's people said, Amen. Exactly. So I was like, why not me? Yes. Why not me? Um, so yeah, I started that little blog and uh, I haven't even looked back at it myself in probably a decade. But but yeah, that was my place to rant and wax philosophical about all the things in the world that um, that bothered me or inspired me. Um, but it was fun. It was, you know, it's a good little exercise to give you a place to kind of hone your, your craft and uh, but then I moved on. I started working with a faith-based organization out of Tampa, Florida called Family First. Mm -hmm. and they have an online presence, sort of a dual presence, um, that one for men called All Pro Dad. And then on the ladies' side, they have a website called imom.com. And I helped produce and, and write the content for imom.com for about six or seven years. Um, and that was good too, because that was, that was kind of right in the sweet spot for me um, because it wasn't an overtly Christian platform, but the organization was Christian. And so it gave me an opportunity to write content about marriage and parenting, <clears throat> excuse me, and family life and sort of weave the gospel into it and weave biblical principles into it in a way that, that I felt and, and I think I know are helpful to people, even if they don't yet follow Christ. Mm -hmm. there, there's so much wisdom 
in the word of God about how to do life and how to do family and, and how these um, great kids. And so, so that was, that was an, an important part of the journey for me too. Uh, but now you're writing for, uh, I guess it's like a family of publications, uh, in Alabama that flies under the single thing of al.com, right? That's right. I, um, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, there was so much going on politically and in the evangelical world that, um, I don't know, kind of poked the bear in me, I guess. And, and all of a sudden I felt like I had a lot to say in that lane. Mm -hmm. And initially I talked to my friend here in my hometown daily newspaper, great guy named Bill Perkins. The Dothan Eagle. The Dothan Eagle. Yeah. Yay. It's it's fit to print. (laughs) (laughs) So I talked to Bill and I said, Hey, um, if I ever, if I ever felt like I had a good political op-ed, would you be interested in running it? He was like, how fast can you get it written? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's where it started. I, I wrote a piece for them a couple of years ago called The Great Lie We Believed um, that, was, that was really inspired from what I felt like was some short-sightedness in the evangelical world about how we engage in the public square and uh, how we were sort of lurching you know, sort of clumsily forward toward political power, not really counting the cost on the spiritual and evangelical side of things. And, um, and that one little column in a small daily newspaper in Southeast Alabama kind of went bananas online. Mm -hmm. And, um, then shortly thereafter, our good friend Roy Moore, um, was pursuing um, the Alabama State Senate seat that had been vacated when Jeff Sessions was named Attorney General. Right. And uh, Roy ran into the buzzsaw of um, all of the sexual assault allegations and sexual misconduct allegations that surfaced with him. Mm. And so I wrote a thing about that that garnered a lot of national attention because um, so many eyes were on Alabama at the time. And that sort of um, was the on-ramp to AL.com. Um, and you're right, they are, it's, uh, it's a suite of, of publishing vehicles. AL.com, obviously, is the digital platform. And then they also own um, the three, three of the four biggest dailies in the state, um, the Birmingham News, the Mobile Press Register, and the Huntsville Times. So um, my, my work appears on the website Usually on Sunday, occasionally, sometimes we'll play with that and publish on a different day. But then the print editors have the option to run my work in the print papers the following week. So you can see it in those as well. Um, Now, evangelicals uh, historically have had a hate-hate relationship with the media. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's very little little, uh, allowance given to what we would typically call the secular press, what some people call the mainstream media. I don't use that term because I think it includes every, everything that's big is mainstream, whether it's liberal or conservative. Sure. So I, I avoid that. But we do have kind of a, a, a suspicion or a jaundiced eye toward the New York Times or the Washington Post or the L.A. Times or the Chicago Tribune, which and these, those are not even like the same section of political philosophy. Uh, but we we view all those things with uh, an eye of suspicion, seemingly. Um, what has your experience been uh, as a uh, woman of faith 
working in the Bible Belt uh, at a, what I'm going to guess is a rather conservative series of media outlets. Um, Has your faith been challenged? Have you ever been asked to like, hey, dial down this abortion rhetoric? We don't want everybody to think that we're like, you know, pro-life or something. Um, or, Or has it been like, write what you want and we'll deal with the fallout? You know, I have to say that um, writing in the past couple of years for these, you know, secular mainstream outlets for the first time in my life, I went into it with a little bit of fear and trepidation, wondering what that would be like and if I would be given the license to um, talk about things exactly as I see them. Um, And I have been blown away, really, and, and pleasantly surprised by the fairness and the collegiality of the people that I work with, um, who I know are personally much further to the left than I, um, who personally hold very different um, opinions on a host of, of issues, particularly social issues like abortion or LGBT rights or, or you name it. But they, there is a real respect there. Mm-hmm. And And I don't know if my experience is everyone's experience, but I hope that it is born out of the fact that they know that even when I disagree with them, I respect and care about them. And, and so you sort of, you sort of get what you give, I think in the world. And so there's, um, there's been a really positive experience for me thus far at Alabama Media Group, and and I can tell you that to a man, almost everybody in the newsroom up there is is several clicks further to the left than <laughs> than they came on politics and and faith and all of these things. But but I'll tell you, when Alabama passed its you know rather controversial abortion bill just mm-hmm. a few months ago, that didn't even include you know exceptions in the case of rape and incest, and I wrote a piece. Um, talking about how I felt like ultimately, from a purely biblical perspective, that is where we need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ran it without hesitation and and without pushback at all. Um, so, and, and, <laughs> and you know, their business too. And that piece did very, very well. It, it got a lot of, um, got a lot of traffic yeah. and even sort of pulled me out doing some some radio and some alternate media um, nationally, and uh, so I think I think they understand that there's a place for all voices, mm-hmm. and we all come to the table um, with with some collegiality and respect toward one another. We we there's there's room to put all those voices out there, um, but but we have to be intentional about it. You can't come into it with an ultra tribal, everybody's out to get me mindset. Um, yeah. I, I, so yeah, it, it's, it's worked well for me thus far. And, and I have to give those folks in Birmingham a ton of credit for, for the way they have treated me and, and the respect they have given me in my opinions. What's been the, uh, what's been the most difficult piece you've written so far since you've been uh, at AL.com? Um, they, they've all, the ones that, you know, that get a lot of traffic and sort of leak out into the national media, um, sort of bring different kinds of blowback into my world. Um, a lot of times I can write something, um, that is 
really decidedly evangelical and biblical in its worldview. And I'm not going to get a lot of pushback in state. If, if it's something that, you know, takes on a life that, that is mostly being read in state, I'll usually get a lot of reader email and social media touches that are mostly affirmation. Yeah. Um, when, when something sort of pushes out into the wider world, then, then you start seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of blowback that is not as charitable and that is not interested in a dialogue. And that makes a lot of assumptions about me. Um, that those are always fun when people, you know, take my, my position on a particular issue, take abortion, for example, mm -hmm. and assume that because I am pro-life and, and pretty hardcore pro-life and that, you know, I think that, you know, life is sacred and, and there's probably really not an incident or a, or a set of circumstances where it's okay to end that life, mm -hmm. even as tragic and hard as those circumstances may be. But they'll, they'll take my position on that and assume that I don't care anything about women. Right. I don't care anything about mothers in crisis and mothers in poverty. And um, that's just not the case either. That's just evidence that you don't know Dana McCain. Because, um, today is an exception. I took today off because I had a very important interview for the Uncommentary podcast. But normally, every Tuesday morning, I am at a place called Wiregrass Hope Group. And I'm giving my day to mentoring women in crisis pregnancies, mm -hmm. most of whom are well below the poverty line. Um, well, we know that's a lie. You're making all that up because you really hate women. Right, right. I mean, it would uh, it would be um, easy to believe that if you read some of the social media comments that come come my way when I write a pro life piece. Um, but, you know, the people who take the time to, to peel back the layers and, and look at my life and what truly informs my worldview and my opinions, other than, you know, biblical orthodoxy, which has always been, and, and I pray will always be the bedrock of my ideas and, and beliefs and actions, um, my life experience informs mm -hmm. my worldview as well and what I here, when I sit across the room from from these women who are absolutely suffering greatly, mm -hmm. because our state could do better with regard to how we uh, create access to health care for for women and children, and with regard to how we um, reform our criminal justice system so that fewer of their fathers are in jail on frivolous charges. Mm -hmm. You or I would never be convicted on. Yeah. Ever, 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 ever. Um, the last time so I got pulled over uh, for speeding, uh, I was on a kind of a back road. I really did not know what the speed limit was, and I really didn't know how fast I was going. There was nobody else on the road until I got about half a mile down, and there's a, a motorcycle cop standing in a totally shaded area. I'm coming out of the sun. It's like the Red Baron. Coming out of the sun, he's standing in a shaded area in his dark blue uniform. He, you know, waves me over and he comes out and he says, Hey, you know, you were going however much. And this is a, I think he said a 30 mile an hour zone. And uh, I said, honestly, officer, I had no idea. I'm just out driving. Wasn't, you know, whatever. And he's like, well, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm just going to give you a warning, but you know, you need to pay attention because we get complaints from the homeowners. It's not, you know, there's like 12 houses on the road. 
right. so just be careful. So I'm like, okay, thanks for not giving me a ticket. So a week later, I'm coming the opposite direction on the same road, uh, going the speed limit. And uh, I pull up. It's the same guy sitting in the same place, looking in the same direction, trying to catch people coming out of the sun, going over the speed limit. So I pull up. At the time, I owned a, a little convertible car. The top was down. I said, hey, uh, how's business today? And he kind of laughed. And I said, yeah, you pulled me over last week coming to doing the same trick on people. And he got the most aghast look on his face and said, I didn't give you a ticket, did I? <laughs> and I'm like, no, and I'm really appreciative. And But in my mind, I'm thinking, I didn't know that's how it was supposed to work. <laughs> I didn't know you were supposed to feel bad for not giving me a speeding ticket when it was clearly within your rights to do so. And I just drove off thinking, man, there's a whole lot of people that would never have had that experience and gotten away tw- basically twice. Um, right. So uh, anyway, so I'm talking to Dana McCain on the Uncommentary Podcast, and we will be back right after this. If you'd like to place an ad on an episode of Uncommentary, please email Marty Duren, M-A-R-T-Y-D-U-R-E-N, no dashes, dots, or underscores, at yahoo.com, Marty Duren at yahoo.com. I'll be glad to email you a rate sheet, and we can talk about a 15-second, 30-second, or 60-second ad on an upcoming episode of Uncommentary. Let me know, and we will work it out. Now back to this week's episode. And we're back. Dana mentioned uh, her husband, Scooter McCain. I just want to ask this question before we uh, talk about something about Scooter. Have you yet emailed John Grisham and said, I have the perfect name for the lead attorney in your next book, Scooter McCain? (laughs) It, it is sort of a, a perfect uh, Southern Southern lawyer, Southern small town lawyer who was the high school quarterback. He's the prototypical Grisham character. Yeah, he's it, it's it's a total waste that Grisham has not used Scooter McCain. It really the- is. I mean, and he's he's had some good names. I just finished his. I guess it's his latest, The Reckoning. I don't know if maybe it's not. Anyway, I just finished it, and all through uh-huh. there. Uh, were names I'm like, yep, that's that's a Mississippi name. Yep, that's an Alabama name. Of course, you know, Clanton, Mississippi, which is not in Mississippi, it's in Alabama, is his fictional, you know, hometown or whatever for most of his books. Uh, so you, in the break, you were talking about um, when uh, Scooter was a young lawyer and was just kind of getting his, uh, he was still wet behind the ears and getting some experience that he was having some, uh, I guess, um, interactions with, with uh, both people who were, I guess, in the courts for whatever reason, and it was eye-opening for you. What did you mean by that? Absolutely. Well, yeah, in, in the early days of his practice, you know, coming straight out of law school, he, like a lot of young attorneys, was taking appointed work from mm-hmm. the court system and was defending um, criminal defendants. And, um, you know, he would come home and talk to me about his cases and more and more every day, um, he was seeing demonstrated where people are just treated differently yeah. in the justice system. And, you know, you, you were talking about being pulled over by the police officer in your hometown. I've got a heavy foot. I've been pulled over a million times in my life. Do you know how many times my vehicle has been searched? Uh, That's fat zero. Look, I've met you and you're suspicious looking to me. And if I was a cop, <laughs> I would handcuff you just for being alive and I would search your car from headlights to taillights. I'm just kidding. But I'm, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I've never, I've never had an officer 
uh, even suggest that I get out of the car or that he wanted to search my vehicle. And um, for for people in poverty and for people of color, that is par for the course many times. And and so yeah, there, there's just there's I, I don't think that all police officers are um, intentionally um, doing things that um, disenfranchise groups, but we do have some cultural problems, some systemic problems that that cause the criminal justice system to work differently for different groups of people. And until we get honest about the fact that that is happening, and it is happening, we can't figure out how to fix it. Right. Um, um, so that leads me to, and I'm going to loop back around to something you said, uh, I think, before the break, where you were talking about, if you wrote a, you know, a pro-life column then uh, you'd get this like over overarching response uh, that you must, you know, hate women, not care about women, blah, blah, blah. Um, There does seem to me because several years ago in my own experience, I began to, you know, kind of reevaluate my political positions based on what I was learning in scripture as an adult, not just as a kid having it, you know, taught to me. And, um, and so, um, listening to uh, brothers and sisters uh, who are not white and their experiences, um, learning what how poverty affected the decisions that uh, people had to make that, uh, that, if, that were politically uh, related. And that I had positions on some of those issues without realizing that there were underlying economic causes and social causes and stuff like that. And so as I began to kind of evaluate some of these things in my mind, and I, I stopped being as hard and fast on some issues. I started trying to find nuance on some issues. I would get called liberal by the conservatives, and I would still be called too conservatives uh, by my liberal friends oftentimes. And I think that's kind of what you're describing. If, you, if you're trying to find the biblical application for many of the social uh, realities that we face in America today, that it's not always going to be easily identified as a right left, a liberal conservative, a democratic Republican, uh, position, but it seems to be a biblical position on a lot of these things. Are you finding that as well? Oh, every single day, every single day. It's, I, I, I joke to, to friends here that I am the only writer in Alabama that can make everybody mad at the same time. I never really please anybody um, because the Bible is just, it is, the Bible is not going to give you quarter for your political agenda. It's just going to tell you the truth. And so as, as I try to apply the Bible to my worldview and to whatever kind of activism or voice in the public square I've put out there, it's just, it's never going to fall in line beautifully mm-hmm. for anybody. Not, not in the way we do politics anymore. Yeah. I mean, we have become so tribal and so isolated from one another. And the dialogue has become so fractured um, that there, there is, there's no such thing as a moderate anymore. And in, and in my way of thinking, and, you know, in politics, 20 years ago, you could find people who, you know, probably were a little more to the right on this issue and a little more to the left on these two issues. And, but they could find a candidate usually somewhere in that middle ground who, 
who more or less represented where they fell on, on the political and worldview spectrum. Those people don't exist anymore yeah. because they cannot win a primary in the United States in 2019 by being fair and intellectually honest and rigorously attached to scripture in developing their worldview. Mm -hmm. um, the American political system will not tolerate that in 2019. You have to lurch far to the right to win a Republican primary. And right now that means being doggedly approving of our current president. And to win a Democratic primary, you have to lurch far to the left and, you know, play footsie with socialism and have no intention of ever having any sort of even restriction on abortion. Yeah. Um, so what, what are Christians to do? It leaves us in this no man's land on this island where um, nothing really represents what I think Christ intended for us as people. And maybe that is, maybe that's the whole point. I, you know, I begin to believe that this may be the way that God is causing us to break up with our idolatry about um, nationalism that we call patriotism, but that a lot of times really lives and functions a lot more like nationalism. Yeah, we, we, we gonna, we're going to have to have a uh, really good defining of terms. I think I tweeted about that a week or so ago where uh, we, we're not going to be, I don't think we're going to be able to use nationalism as a synonym for patriotism anymore. I think we're going to have to have a clear break uh, that patriotism is love and appreciation for country and standing for the flag and singing the anthem and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, being generally supportive. Uh, but nationalism, and I'm using it with a capital N, uh, is more of a syncretism. There's a, there's a baptizing of nationalist agenda uh, in the you know in the blood of Christ or in the waters of the church and uh, it's it's not good and it's just it it leads to just as much false doctrine as you know a Jehovah's Witness um, teaching in the Watchtower and it's unhealthy and it's dangerous in my view um, but I don't think that we and I don't mean me and you I mean evangelicals as a whole I I think we have not recognized that this is a thing. And now that we're starting to recognize that this is a thing, I think there's going to have to be some really diligent writing uh, to where our veterans, for instance, don't feel like that they're being condemned when somebody says you can't be nationalistic and be effective as a Christian or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead that they can feel affirmed in their service, if you know, if they served well or whatever, um, and that they still want to be you know, recognized for having, you know, borne the weight of war and those kinds of things, which are hugely important. So I think sure. we have to do a really, really good job of distinguishing now uh, patriotism from this, what I'm calling capital N nationalism, that does seem to be blending uh, more nationalistic goals and with some kind of Christian rhetoric and Christian ideals and that kind of thing. And I, I think it's going to be problematic for us if we're not careful. Well, you know, I was, I was saying to a friend the other day, I love my country. I, I really do. I think that God has blessed us in so many ways. It's not at all perfect because, you know, Americans are sinners, just like everybody on the pew in the church is a sinner. Right. And so there, there's, there's going to be the vestiges of sin in our midst all the time forever. Um, but I, I think what I have had 
a moment of clarity about in these last couple of years is that as much as I love this country, much like my life, it is a vapor. Yeah. And the only thing that is eternal is the kingdom of God and where the kingdom of God and vigorously working toward the purposes of the kingdom of God run into conflict with what a lot of people around me today would call patriotism. I'm going to choose the eternal every time um, without apology. And that is just really uncomfortable for a lot of people because we've spent a good two or three decades now completely conflating patriotism and Christianity mm-hmm. and confusing ourselves about where one ends and the other begins. Um, by branding America as a Christian nation, I think we, we further confuse the church about what is and is not the kingdom of God. And as much as I love this country and as much as I think the Lord has blessed it, and I pray he continues to bless it, if we'll allow him to, um, by, by truly seeking him, it's not the kingdom of God, and it's not eternal. And um, if if I have to choose, I'm going to choose um, the way of Scripture every time. You recently wrote a uh, satirical post called In Praise of, quote, God's Man, unquote, uh, mm-hmm. And judging by some of the response, you probably should have included satire alert in the title. And then in ginormous, Absolutely. bold letters at the very beginning, you probably should have said something like, hey, this might have been on the onion if I had submitted it. Uh, <laughs> instead, you saved that little disclaimer till the very end and a ton of people uh, misread. Uh, and then I'm assuming that some read it right and just simply didn't agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, tell us a little, tell us a little bit about that. We got about uh, we have about four minutes left. Sure. Well, um, you know, again, because so much of the evangelical church is ardent and unapologetic about its support, not just of conservatism as we've always known it, because that is an outgrowth of scripture, but of this particular individual, this mm-hmm. particular president, um, I, I have noticed that. By degrees, over the past two or three years, we have begun to refashion ourselves and what we will tolerate to accommodate this particular personality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, in a rally on national television in Greenville um, a couple of weeks ago, the president used the Lord's name in vain. He said GD twice on a hot mic. In, in a stadium full of people or a coliseum full of people. So this was like this was like part of his speech. This wasn't like he turned his head and said something about get that person off the stage or something. No, no. This was like this was like in in the in the text, him sharing an anecdote about what he said to one particular about, you know, if you don't vote for me, you're gonna be so blank poor. Um and I forget exactly how he used it the second time, but yeah. Very, very casual, and it wasn't like something that he said and then thought, oh, man, I can't believe that threw out, flew out of my mouth. I apologize. I shouldn't have you. He didn't apologize because he doesn't care. Yeah. He doesn't think it's wrong. Um, and so, you know, in, in the world I grew up in, pastors would have would have body slammed that before the speech was over. Yeah. In the world I live in now, 
there was a deafening silence, not just from the majority of evangelical pastors, but even from the ones who are publicly linked to him on his evangelical advisory council. Um, that no one will correct this, this man, and not even out of love for him. I think it would be a, a more loving thing toward him because, you know, we don't know anyone's heart, but, it, but if you judge fruit to try to figure out if someone knows Christ or doesn't know Christ, I would, if I'm a betting woman, I would bet that Donald Trump probably does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so to, to my way of thinking, you know, the, the, the major call on the lives of those who surround him on the evangelical advisory council is to walk this man toward the Lord. Yeah. And, um, what we, what we read from people like Cliff Sims who served in that white house and, and others who come out of that experience and talk is that no one is telling this man the truth because he really doesn't want to hear it, but none of them are willing to sacrifice their seat next to the throne um, by by risking irritating him by telling him the truth. So um, the court evangelicals were, were silent, and much of the greater church was silent. And, um, you know, I've been told time and again by people anecdotally in my own life that he is he is God's man, and no matter how bad he is or no, no matter what he says and how far off of a biblical world he gets because he's he's accomplishing the right ends we are going to totally turn a blind eye to the means yeah that's uh that's an interesting uh, that's really interesting that, you know, we don't require God's man to live by God's standard and he can still be God's man. Um, there, there had always been a difference, uh, in my understanding and what I was taught that, that God could use anyone that he chose at any per- point in time for any purpose that he chose, whether that person was a believer or not a believer. And people would always, you know, use the, uh, the old Martin Luther thing, that even the devil is God's devil. And so even the devil has to ultimately be used by for God for whatever his purposes are. But there was yeah. always a distinction between uh, a person that God might use to accomplish an end that we not we might not be able to see at the time and a person who was committed to Christ, was a committed follower of God. And that that's the kind of person that we would call God's man or God's woman. We wouldn't call the other folks God's man or God's woman we would, you know, we would just call them by their name, or we would say this might be a person that God used, or this is a person that doesn't follow God that He used in this circumstance. But there was never this um, excuse making, you know, King Cyrus, King David type of thing of, of just trying to refashion a person who, even to this day, um, doesn't uh, doesn't exhibit. Uh, yeah, I know he's not pastor in chief, you know, I know, uh, but, but there's no, there's nothing that exhibits what I would have believed would have been necessary to, uh, to earn that title or have that title of this is God's man, or this is God's woman. And that has been, uh, just a, uh, a real, uh, eye opener surprise uh, to me over these last couple of years. So Dana, where can people find you online? What's your Twitter stuff and your, all that? Uh, my Twitter, and that's where I am most active on social media is DH McCain, 
Um, so you can find me there, and that's where I'll tweet links to things that I publish at AL.com and elsewhere. And then you can always find me on AL.com. And if you Google or if you search my name on the website, you can see a backlog of a lot of things I've written. And uh, if you look her up on Twitter and you're not sure, her profile picture uh, is a a red a red dress or a red top and it's this orange this layered like uh, I don't know like uh, curling iron that's what it is curling iron hair <laughs> and it doesn't look if you run into her at the mall you're not going to recognize her I'm just going to tell you no, that my hair is not that long anymore and that that profile pic is such false advertising I have got to update it. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we, we need a fresh, we need a fresh, you know, data for social. That's awesome. All right, Dana McCain, thank you so much for being on Uncommentary. Thanks, Marty. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter, Abby, who helps with the scheduling. If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at UncommentaryPod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or paypal.me slash UncommentaryPod, and make a one-time gift there. Or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want, starting at about two bucks. And that would be greatly appreciated as well. Until the next time, Sobadeo Gloria.